Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Good evening, everybody. As we uh, begin on this Ash Wednesday, the 40-day period of fasting and abstinence uh, and prayer life of Lent, that brings us closer and closer, we hope, through our devotions of this Lenten practice to Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about a few things, but I want to give the number here uh, in case you want to call in or have a con- uh, some type of comment. The number here is 515-604-9344. You'll be prompted to an access code, which is 914 914- one two one pound, and the number here is five one five six zero four nine three four four, and the access code is nine one four one two one pound. So, another Lent is upon us, and during this Lent, this forty days, which is such a beautiful time in the church, that we get to prepare our souls for a deeper, closer, intimate relationship with our Savior, Jesus. Now, this Lent, it's possible that we have our own traditions that we do with Lent. Maybe it's giving up um, candy or sweets or television show or coffee or something that we enjoy. And that's, that's all fine, well, and good. But what I would like to suggest is maybe something a little bit more spiritual, a little deeper than what we're used to doing or maybe what we've given up so many times in the past. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that maybe it's time we break the mold, come out of our comfort zone a little, and do something that's challenging us in our spiritual life. For example, if possible, we try to go to daily Mass or as many Masses as we can besides the Sunday Mass. Or we increase our priest time, or prayer time, excuse me. Or that we try to be kinder. Maybe to go to confession at least a couple of times during the 40-day period of Lent, especially if we haven't gone in a long time. Maybe we practice one of the virtues, like patience. Maybe we try to give up worrying and fear. And maybe if we have an anger problem, we try to give up something that would um, lead us to anger, that will help us to be kinder, gentler, and concentrate on things like that. Maybe it's reading scripture, and especially with uh, Lexio Divina, where we meditate on the passage and see what Jesus is trying to say to us. And speaking of that, maybe when we pray, we come off some of our rote prayers and our popular prayers and really speak to Jesus as the friend and father he is, and then, more importantly for us, to listen. To listen what Jesus is trying to tell us. And to grow this Lent in a spiritual way. Now, these are very challenging, and I'll admit it. It's very difficult. Let's say, let's take kindness. Let's say we're going to try to be kinder to people. That is going to be tested Maybe the maybe the today when we've gotten our ashes, we're we're out of the service, and all of a sudden, you know, something happens. And as Lent begin, continues on, it's going to be tougher and tougher to try to remember that Lenten promise that we made to try and be kinder to people. But we can do it with the grace of God. These are very challenging, and I'm not saying that uh, giving up sweets or candy or a television show something like that isn't because it is a challenge. Um, 
if you really like coffee and you give it up, that is that is a huge sacrifice. Most definitely, it's going to take discipline. But the spiritual disciplines that I've been talking about are going to help us grow in a way that we can probably and prayerfully and hopefully take with us after the 40-day period of Lent. See, for me, the problem giving up a food item is, um, because I've done that before, is that after the 40 days, I am so glad to get back to that. And with a spiritual um, discipline, what we're hoping to do is to let that discipline that we've chosen not be something we just um, end at the end of the 40 days of Lent as we get into the Easter season, but to continue that through our lives daily. And that's the key. And that's why that is such a challenge because it's, this isn't something when we do these spiritual disciplines that we're looking, uh, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel here because Easter will be here and I can get back to some normalcy that I'm, I'm waiting for. The spiritual discipline can continue on, as I mentioned, for the rest of our lives. And that's why it's so important, because it can bring us closer to our Lord. Um, you know, So these sufferings that, that we have and, and we can use for, for souls, it's known as redemptive suffering, that suffering doesn't go to waste, that all becomes part of this Lenten discipline. Because I certainly don't have to tell you how different, difficult it is at times to be kind to each other, whether in a workplace, but especially our family members and those closest to us that seem to be uh, greater challenges. Um, so that's one suggestion is that um, I'd like to make this one, is if you've never tried that before and start with something small that you think you can do. Don't, don't start with a goal that is going to be almost impossible to reach because you're going to get frustrated with that. And you probably won't keep that. But something that you feel like, say, the patience, that you know you can be more patient and really work with that, you try to do that. And, you know, if we slip up during the slant, you know, whatever day it is, we can come back. We can start the devotion. Let's say we had a real bad day a week after Ash Wednesday, and we didn't do so well. Now, that Thursday, come right back and try the devotion. Because God is always waiting. He's always there to forgive, and he wants us to keep trying and persevering in the faith. And that's, that's critical for us. That's critical for us. So that's what we'll, we'll try to do this Lent, is we'll try to get spiritually closer, enjoy this 40 days, because it's not something that we should dread as Catholics. We really should realize the beauty of the 40-day preparation leading to the incredible uh, Easter season because of the resurrection of Christ. Because that's what all this comes down to. You know, we, we really have no idea uh, what Jesus suffered at the crucifixion. It's hard for us to really imagine. I think uh, one of the films, even that, you know, uh, can't come close to what Jesus truly experienced in real life, was Mel Gibson's The Passion, which was pretty graphic, especially the scourging scene. But in reality, what Jesus suffered was probably much, much more, including the fact that I think what we um, don't concentrate a lot on is how much spiritual suffering he went. Imagine becoming sin, taking on sin and becoming it yourself, where your own father has to turn away from you. And that you see the sins of the world that would be committed and the inhumanity that mankind would do to each other. And the impurities and everything and evil that human beings can think and do and act on. Jesus knows all this. He takes this all upon himself. And then he's betrayed. You know, we look at Palm Sunday and talk about what a difference a week would make. There, Hosanna him in the highest as he rides into Jerusalem, spreading their blankets and waving palms and cheering his name that the new king is in town. He's going to set this right by the Romans wrong. 
And even his apostles, his closest, felt this was the time now. This was the time. Israel's coming back in a big way. But it wasn't what they understood. And a week later, they killed him. So he was betrayed. And I think uh, most of us listening to this show, and I hope there are uh, many that have not been betrayed, but the odds are if you're a human being, it's very good that you have been. And some of it's by spouses, uh, brothers, sisters, parents, co-workers, friends, best friends that we never thought would turn. You just don't know because we are weak in our human nature because of sin and we do these things to each other. And how awful Jesus must have felt to these people that he wept for, this city, this Jerusalem, that they would turn on him and want his death. And what a horrible death it was, that crucifixion. Only designed for the worst of criminals. So the Romans would send a lesson to people, you don't mess with us, or this is what happens. And in the road leading into Rome, they would have these crosses with the bodies on them on both sides of the road to remind people, hey, this is where the power lays. Make no mistake about it. Don't cross us because we'll chew you up and spit you out. But don't buck the system. And that, of course, is what Jesus and being a follower of Jesus really is, isn't it? Because to, to be a follower of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that is who he said he was. And he is the Son of Man. And he is our Savior. And, you know, Jesus is defined his personhood by what he did. Such things as beatitudes and love your enemies, turn the other cheek, trying to bring a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach to the world so that injustices would be overturned and justice would reign in the kingdom of peace. Because we, you really can't have any peace until there's justice. And that's one of the things that, that the kingdom of God strives to obtain here on earth is justice. Because, you know, especially as we get into the spiritual time of Lent, what should be a deeper spiritual time, hopefully, that for many, the concentration of, of faith is at the end of the world and heaven and paradise. And that's all well and good. But we can't also take our eye here off our earthly lives because that's all part of it. Part of our faith walk is to try to bring about the kingdom of God here and now. So it's not either or, but and and both. And that's what we try to do. We try to bring the kingdom of God by the witness of our lives, by being an inspiration and um, trying to affect change that is positive and good to bring a message of hope and a new vision that is usually countercultural to the culture we live in. And it doesn't matter what time that is in history. Right now, uh, we see a very strong secularization of the culture. And the, our vision as Christians in the kingdom of God is entirely different than a top-bottom approach where it's not blessed are the poor, but blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who have power. Blessed are those who have the most material goods. Blessed of those who are famous. Blessed of those who are stars and athletes. Blessed are those who demand an eye for an eye. And that is not the Beatitudes that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure of heart. You know, and speaking of peace, 
you know, it's the only time in Scripture, I believe, that Jesus calls us children of God, the peacemaker. So peace is important, and justice follows that, because you have to have justice in order to have peace. They, they cannot be separated. And especially in the society we see today, um, you know, what's alarming is you're, you're seeing mainstream newspapers and some politicians even talking about civil war, that there's such a disconnect now between people. The, the dialogue, it seems, is over. So we definitely need peacemakers, you know, peacemakers in our family, peacemakers in our culture. And uh, we need that desperately. And this is a good time to reflect on things in Lent because it is, Lent is a very mystical time, should be for the church and for us as individuals because we are trying to tap in that mystery that is Jesus Christ and how he was born to die to bring us back with the Father reunite us and to give us eternal life through that resurrection. It is a great mystery. There are many mysteries as human beings that we are not going to get the answers to here on earth. It's just not going to happen. And it's okay to let that go because we're not God. And God will make all of this right somehow, and to trust in that. And Lent is a time to think about that. Because the worst things human beings ever did was on that Good Friday was to kill our God. And I mentioned before that following Jesus requires, it costs to be a disciple. Discipleship costs if we're going to follow Jesus. Because to believe that Jesus is the Son of God requires that we do the things that he does. And that, in many times, is to challenge the status quo. And this doesn't mean a violent overthrow, because certainly we didn't see that with Jesus. He actually, when in the agony in the garden, when Malchus's ears cut off, he berates and want and heals, of course, Malchus. But he doesn't want a sword for a sword. It's a different way now, a different paradigm, one that entirely changes things and gets people to think of a different way. So. It critiques when we follow Jesus, but yet it's not confrontational. And while it's assertive, it is not aggressive. And that is a challenge, especially in today's society, where there is this division. And this gets very difficult when, as a follower of Christ, we are required to speak the truth. And that comes with a price tag these days because in many jobs, in many areas, in the political correct world in which we live, you cannot do that without paying the price. And in some areas of this world, especially in the Middle East, as it was in the beginning of the early days of Christianity, they're giving up their lives and paying the ultimate price by becoming martyrs for Christ as the early church. And being a follower of Christ doesn't mean that we just have this personal relationship and try to connect with God and the heck with everybody else. It's just me and God. Quite the contrary. Faith and community, they go hand in hand. And faith and morality cannot be separated, as well as I mentioned the community. Because we need each other. We need each other to be compassionate and share in each other's sufferings and crosses and try to alleviate that suffering 
And that's why we need each other. Because the danger of just having a personal relationship with Jesus is that we lose our compassion for each other. And that doesn't bode well, as we can see in our history as human beings, when that happens. And this following of Jesus, then, we realize what the cost is, is what he had said. Pick up your cross and follow me daily. And he talks about Jesus, talking to us about persevering in the end, and those will be saved. And meditating on these, these mysteries of Christ during this Lenten season is awesome because there are many graces available during Lent. Just as I mentioned, if you go to daily Mass to try to attend as many Mass as you can, you're able to get the Eucharist. You have Jesus inside of you. And the more you receive him, the more you will become like him. Because that's the key. When we ask the greatest question we can as human beings, who is Jesus to us? We begin to get that answer as we get a, a closer and uh, personal relationship with him. So then that n naturally leads to we try to emulate him, and that means we try to mimic the Trinity because Christian love is about is all Trinitarian and the relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. And that is what they call kenosis, self-emptying. In Philippians, Paul talks about this, that even though he was God, he did not grasp at this, but let go and emptied himself on that cross for us. And that's the kind of love we're required to have, a self-emptying love. Is it hard? You better believe it. Because we are selfish. We're selfish human beings, and it's hard to try to um, get away from that. But that would be a good practice also this Lenten season, as I mentioned, when we, we try to be kind or more patient with the uh, each other, is that that will lead to that. That's what I meant. That kind of devotion may take us further than the 40 days where we can figure it's over and I can go back to my old stuff that I used to do. This is trying to change us in a much more deeper and profound way. But Lent has these mysteries for us to delve into and to meditate on. And um, whatever you choose this Lent, um, Try to let that lead you closer spiritually and tap into that mystery, which is Jesus, so we can get that trust by being childlike. Not naive, but childlike. And, you know, I thought tonight on the show, uh, one of the things we would do, since it is Lent, is I'd like to talk a little about the Shroud of Turn. Now, we talked about miracles on the show before and what is required to be a miracle. You know, we pray for miracles in, in such uh, dire circumstances in our lives with someone with inoperable cancer or it just seems that the situation is so bleak um, and we need healing and it's going to have to be a divine healing. And you see these miracles. And... Where then can we find a miracle that is both historical, documented, and has witnesses to it? And these multiple witnesses who witness a miracle, all the stories fit. And that there's a history and document, uh, that's documented, documented evidence from other sources that corroborate a primary source. There is even archaeological evidence. And the best part of this particular miracle is that it can be explained only by a miracle and no other way. Now, there are many cases that don't fit the materialistic explanation of miracles. But there is one 
that is par excellence. Now, that miracle, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. And that miracle, the resurrection, is a miracle that governs all of them. Because that is the key to our faith. That Jesus rose from the dead. And as St. Paul talks about, without that, we, we really are foolish to do all the things we do. To suffer for Christ, to give our lives for Christ, to do our fasting this Lenten season, to enter a prayer life, to give up things that we want, to love our fellow man as ourselves when really, you know, without the resurrection, it's just survival of the fittest in a dog-eat-dog world. So why not step on anybody on my way to the top and get all the toys I can? Like that old bumper sticker. Remember that bumper sticker? He who has the most toys at the end wins. Well, I don't know what they win, but we don't want to live our lives like that. But in a way, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, it means at the end of this life, we're annihilated. We die alone, even if our loved ones are gathered around us. It's going to be our journey. And if that's all she wrote, we're, we're finished. Maybe someone back here has some nice memories of us. And they talk well of us, and some of we have a legacy. All well, fine and good. But the bottom line there would be, with no resurrection, we're finished. We are gone. To be no more. Annihilated. But of course, because of the resurrection, our faith is not in vain. We are not foolish. And this is the miracle that Lent, when we look at Lent, and we look at the crucifixion of Jesus and his passion, leads to the empty tomb. Because without that cross, there is no joy of the resurrection. There is no uh, hope that we have for ourselves at the end of this life. But Jesus' resurrection changed all that. And we see that we can have, through the shroud, proof and evidence of the resurrection. Now, when we look at our faith, in, in the supernatural aspect of our faith, we can base it on inexplicable physical facts. And supernatural proof is, of course, the favorite and unique explanation of the church when it approves a miracle of a saint. Everything has to be exhausted. Everything. All known physical facts have to be exhausted before the church proclaims that a miracle, say, done by a saint for canonization or beatification was indeed supernatural in origin. And this is important for us to know. And that's why the church really goes through an intense process before it determines a miracle. Now, when pointing to the shroud as an argument, and there's atheists that are going to argue, you know, I, one of the biggest things uh, for the shroud, of course, when we're dealing with atheists, or is that most of them will mock it and saying, well, you know what I heard or read, that the carbon-14 dating showed it to be a medieval forgery a long time ago. And one of the problems with this argument is that carbon-14 testing that was cited in the case of when they did the shroud is hardly infallible. And carbon-14 is far from being the only proof that the shroud pre presents. And carbon dating is not um, one of the most reliable uh, techniques to try and get evidence, especially for something like the shroud, but other things, even in fossils and things like this, there are discrepancies, and there are huge discrepancies. 
And you can't always put uh, your faith on this carbon-14. And I want to just go over a few of the things that the shroud does have and represent that are just, to me, mind-boggling. I think you'll find them very interesting um, in proving that the shroud is supernatural in its origin. And one, uh, there's no te technology to print on fabric in that way of the image of the shroud that we know of and that we have. So the image is not a stain. We know it's not painted on the shroud. It's not burned into the shroud in any conventional way. What we have instead is a scorched image on the cloth. And we don't know how we can explain that. So you have the scorched image that defies any explanation. So the image then cannot be reproduced using any medieval technologies. And many people have tried to go back and do what they believed a, a person in the Middle Ages to take it would have done. They've disproved that. But even more important to me is that it can't be reproduced with our modern technology. So the technology then and the technology now are not capable of printing that image or compiling that image. Now, with our increase in technology, it's helped uh, in determining that the child is supernatural. Like, let's, for instance, excuse me, take the 3D capabilities of the image. The image of the man on the cover can be read by 3D imaging technology, which we have today. And it is three-dimensional. Let me repeat that. The image is three-dimensional. Why is that important? Because if it was painted on there, some argue, like they said in the medieval testing when they did that and, and couldn't you know, come up with the, the uh, image on the shroud, all the paintings fail in this test because they cannot be three-dimensional. And yet, because of the technology we have now, we can see this. One of the better knowns is the positive-negative image. The image is a photographic negative. Now, what that means, that when a traditional photograph is taken, what should be negative appears as a positive image. And yet, with the shroud, it's negative. And that's one of the knocks against a medieval painting, is how did they do that and why? How could they have possibly done that? Because it just goes against the principle. Then there's the uh, anatomical precision. Not only is this an accurate picture of a dead man, but the image is distorted to unveil a, really, a real body. And the body disappears inside the fabric. So how can, how can you do that? How can you kind of fake that and imprint something on a piece of cloth when you have this? So this distortion unreals a true body, not a copy or a painting. Then, of course, we know we have from history the historical accuracy of crucifixion. And the image on the shroud, the wounds are consistent not only with Roman crucifixion, but with the details of Jesus's special crucifixion, like the crown of thorns that, thanks to modern technology, show in the image of the shroud. We see, as predicted in scripture, that there were no broken bones when Jesus was flogged. That's in the image. 
there is a wound in the side, which we know happened to Jesus when the spear was thrust in his side and the blood and water poured out. Then we look at geographic accuracy. That the pollen on the shroud is not only from the Jerusalem area, but from Turkey and the other places that the shroud is supposed to have resided. And the dust in the area that covers the knees and feet is from the Jerusalem area. We see from the shroud that there is accuracy with what was then the Jewish funerary customs. The shroud shows details perfectly consistent with the Jewish burial customs of the first century. And there are even microscopic traces of the flowers that were used in the funeral. Flowers that grew only locally in Jerusalem and were best known to be used for burial. There's blood that is imprinted and it arrived before the image. Studies show that the blood came to the sheet first and that the image happened later. Wow. Now, if it was painted, where is the evidence? There, because there is no evidence of painting anywhere. In addition, the type of fabric coincides with the historical time and the region. The cloth is consistent with the fabrics of the first century of Israel, but not with those of medieval Europe. Let me repeat that. The cloth is consistent with the fabrics of the first century of Israel, but not with those of medieval Europe. Now, you look at all those things, and it's pretty easy to refute this carbon-14 uh, argument. It's, in essence, a really cheap argument that is easily picked apart with some of the examples that I just gave right now. Now, we have, with the shroud then, you can have this irrefutable physical evidence of the existence of God. And let's be honest, the existence of God is the most important issue for the human being. Because it changes, when we, when we say, who asked that question to ourselves or society or the world today? Who do you say that I am? That Jesus asked Peter. It, the ramifications are huge. Because if, if we do believe that Jesus is God and did what he did in his ministry, we need to change. And change is hard for human beings. But the ramifications are huge. Because we're talking about a supernatural warfare about God against the devil, about eternal damnation and eternal life. We are talking that there will be an accounting at the end of our lives then, and not just as individuals, but nations, according to Matthew 25. What you did to the least of one of these, you did to me. And a hard part, when we mentioned before earlier in the show about Jesus making a bottom-top approach, changing uh, in a radical approach from the top to bottom that we live even today, an accountability that, let's be honest, shakes people up, but also perplexes them because the reviled and the poor are going to be first in the kingdom. It's completely opposite of what m most of societies and we are living now have been through. So it's extremely important, this question, obviously. Because humanity from the beginning has wondered if there is a supernatural being who created everything and sustains it, and then does he care for us? Does he love us? And it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for most of us to really wrap this in our arms. And understand the God that really, really, truly loves us and will never abandon us. It's hard as a human being in our humanness to get our arms around that. 
But this is a question that was from time immemorial and will be till the end. Now, our ancestors, of course, explain anything that they did not understand as a miracle of God. But as science came and grew, they were finding natural explanations for many things. Sadly, this is why many atheists think that science can come to explain everything and prove that God does not exist. Now, there is this false belief that there is this never-ending battle, and it's probably one of the reasons it's certainly, if, if not the most important, is this belief that science can explain everything away. We just don't know the answers yet, and we trace that back to our ancestors because we believe that they were naive and not as enlightened as us, didn't have the science, and we have the explanation. So therefore, uh, we will be able to figure everything out, and everything else has a reasonable explanation. And we'll be able to prove that. So you have this division between science and faith when in actuality, especially with the church, it's never driven a wedge between science and faith, but they complement each other. And actually, as we see science grow in its technology, especially with the DNA and the coding, and what we see now with their, these super telescopes and the universe, that it's lending to an existence from a first cause. And that's exciting if you're a believer in God. Now, there's still people that will argue that, but, you know, that uh, they may be the ones, when they say we have pie in the sky, that actually have that pie in the sky. Because experimental science, it deals with matter, and it deals with things here in the material. And it cannot prove the existence of God, or the opposite. It can't disprove, because science is handled, again, in the natural world, and God is supernatural by definition. So it's not going to prove one way or the other if God exists or he doesn't. However, we have a, you know, a series of arguments that lead us to believe that God exists. One, of course, is the ontological argument used by reason to examine the concept of God as a perfect being that is purely philosophical. But more understandable is to justify his existence in the complexity of our planet, which points to a designer who deliberately created our universe. And we look at creation and the intricacies and how it all works and fits together the Earth, for example, is a perfect ecological system that sustains life. And we look and see that science now talks about this fine-tuning of the universe, that if one thing was off, one little micrometer, nothing could exist. Any variation in the ecology of this Earth and this universe implies that we would no longer exist. Any tiny variation. The wonder of the human brain and the eye leads us to think our biology is not a consequence of the blind evolution. I mean, the intricacies. I mentioned the, the DNA and the coding now, which many scientists are saying this just could not happen. And the beginning of the universe also points to an original creator. The explanation that our universe began with a huge explosion of energy that we call the Big Bang is what prevails with most scientists today. But that begs the question, who created the Big Bang? In addition, that universe created from the Big Bang operates with uniform laws. For instance, gravity is constant. The Earth turns over itself in 24 hours. In many things. And the two I just mentioned, all with a remarkable mathematical regularity. But we also have the revelation made to us by Jesus Christ, a historical figure who said he was the son of God and showed it with prodigies that are embodied in the Holy Bible. 
And of course, innumerable human beings have received supernatural messages of this reality. You know, indeed, there's a series of arguments in favor of the existence of God based on design and physical historical evidence. Now, you know, I, I mentioned that shroud, and we mentioned the flowers and the pollens. You know, they, they found on the shroud that there were two coins at, at Roman times that were used over the eyes, which was another uh, funeral practice of the first century. Broken nose. Just so many things that correspond on the shroud, a true miracle based on that um, resurrection of Jesus. You know, in, in one study, that some scientists have done it where, uh, an experiment where the only re way that uh, the image could have been on the cloth was a spontaneous burst of energy that is not known to man in, in a mathematical equation. And this burst of energy left the image on a God, which they leads them to believe in that resurrection. It's fascinating stuff. And there are many good books written on the shroud, uh, if you're interested. And in addition, when we look at an argument for God, if, if we look at atheistic materialism as true, then the natural world must be a closed system. But then this theory falls, the closed system, when there is only one case and only one whose existence exceeds natural explanation. And it suffices it to say that one single fact that cannot be explained by natural causes to demonstrate that there is something that is outside the material world, and that is what it means is that it is supernatural. What is above is exactly that, outside the material world and supernatural. Materialism demands that everything must be explained within the closed system. There's no place for angels, extraterrestrials, demons, devils, elves, gods, you name it. So if atheistic materialism is correct, there can be no intelligent external forces superior to the natural world because that would interfere or interact with the natural world. So it cannot be. But it turns out that there are mysteries that exceed the material world. We know this. And of course, one of the mysteries is what we're talking here, the shroud. You know, there's other, um, when we consider the test, and have, say, nine items that fit the known facts and fit together, and have a piece of evidence that does not fit, it's common sense to distrust, to distrust the piece of evidence, that piece of evidence that doesn't fit, and reject it or try to see why it doesn't fit. That's, that's common. That's very common. And what we see from the 1987 test of the shroud and how it was, it, that's what you see when it's, we say it was defective. Because if people that, say if atheists really want evidence of God's existence, they need to look for a genuine miracle. And that should prove to them that God exists. Yet, they have to be objective and you know, they really got to care, not just to have an argument. They've got to be open-minded and really want to know. You know, I, I want to point out, too, that uh, a German theologian and friend of uh, Pope Benedict XVI found from the writings of a bishop of the ninth century what is a pretty fascinating historical discovery. It revealed how the Holy Shroud of Turin and Sidarium of Avideo and also the Veil of Veronica were central to the Roman liturgy in the Carolingian times and very likely before that. Now, this discovery was made by Klaus Berger of Heidelberg, a German theologian 
an old friend of Joseph Ratzinger and a New Testament scholar. And he was conducting a detailed investigation into the Apocalypse of St. John. And during his studies, he met one of the great commentators on the Apocalypse, uh, Amalario. And he lived there in 775 to 850. And he was a liturgical expert of the Carolingian era who was Bishop of Metz in France and Archbishop of Trier in Germany. So during this research, he came across this Amalario. And in addition, he was a great liturgist of the Carolingian area to whom Pope Sergio II made a cardinal. Now, in those days, the altar cloth resembled, resembled the covering and shroud that the apostles Peter and John found in the empty holy sepulcher on Easter morning. But you have a huge gap in the documented records of Easter morning in Jerusalem and, of course, the time they first appeared in public. We know that the shroud appeared in 1208 in Roman public when Pope Innocent III put it on public view. And the sheet appeared in 1355 for the first time in the West in Luray in the French area of Champagne. But we can nevertheless be sure that the two cloths have always been part of the memory of the liturgy, even though their physical presence came later. And Amalario may have witnessed seeing them in France. And it's important to bear in mind that their presence in the liturgy did not begin in the Carolingian era, but was probably used from the beginning. For they were stored for many years, we know, in the East, but they were always hidden. And even in the Middle Ages, in the first millennium, there used to be a tradition in the Roman liturgy that the cloth on the altar had to be linen, and the altar had to be made of rock, understood as a tomb. From this, we can understand why the altar cloth, analogous to the shroud until 1969, had to be of pure linen. And this is why the bodily cloth should always be folded in a particular way because of the analogy with the shroud. So you see in the liturgy, even from the beginning, that certain things were done because they were in conjunction with the shroud. And that is a very fascinating thing because it shows us that from the beginning that this shroud was indeed believed to be the one that covered Christ. And we know that the altar was understood as a sepulcher where lifeless elements became something alive, flesh and bone, Jesus. So when we talk about physical uh, documents that escape materialistic explanation, they fit perfectly with a supernatural explanation. And that's, you know, many people argue this, I am convinced, it's just my opinion, that it requires, if they truly, as I mentioned a moment ago, of someone that does not believe, but is really interested and really wants to know and has an open heart and an open mind, you can accept this evidence like the shroud and as I mentioned, there's many good books. You can go online now, look at the studies. It's fascinating, fascinating. And you can come to accept that there's something outside of us that is supernatural, that is spiritual. And that's tough because it means we may have to change everything we believed in and the way we live our lives. And that's where it gets difficult. That's where it gets very difficult. But I mention the shroud because during this Lenten period, that's what this is about, this preparation of ours, is to change and amend our lives, especially if we have not been living a good Christian life. 
And if we aren't believers, to realize that what is the harm in trying to open our hearts and minds and looking to see that maybe this Christianity, maybe this Jesus Christ has something to offer that I have not seen, that I have not had in my life, a freedom, a love, compassion. Where does that come from? Where do I get this thing they call a conscience? When I look at the intricacies of creation, do I really believe this was just an accident and everything is so fine-tuned to the nth, nth degree that if one thing was off, life would not exist, all this would not exist, and I really believe that was just happenstance. And when I look at evil in the world, do I have some type of explanation for it? Is it just bad choices we make? Or is there something more? And contrary, when I look at the good, is it just because we want to do that as human beings, that we have something inside of us that wants us to be altruistic and help each other? Is it just preservation of the species or is there more here? Is there something spiritual that knows that I am supposed to step out of myself in a self-giving way, in a self-sacrificing way, and love? And what's really important, is it that love, that love that will last, that love will, let, will take me in eternity? Or am I annihilated at the end? And these are very difficult questions for non-believers. They're very difficult questions sometimes for people that do believe, especially when the crosses come our way, when we're at a funeral for a loved one, especially someone close to us. Where are they? What happens to them? What happens to me? And these are the great questions and the important questions we ponder in life. Because as we grow older, we certainly don't look at life as when we were children, when we were in our teen years, when we were in our 20s or 30s. Everything's different. Our physical makeup's different. Our mental makeup's different. Everything. And as we get older and we get experience, things change. And we see things. We've been through the wars, so to speak. And we look to something that gives hope. And the older we get, realize it's not the system, it's not the human beings. That's not those we put on a pedestal or we admired. But it's something greater, greater than us. One that has promised us freedom, and happiness, joy, life in abundance. an eternal paradise with him in a kingdom where there are no more tears, no more separation, no more sin, no more death. This Lent, and every Lent, and every Good Friday, lead the passion of Christ to the empty tomb. Cross leads to victory. The worst thing that that human beings ever did, as I mentioned, was kill our God and the greatest good and greatest victory Jesus got for us on the worst evil. And that is hope indeed. And if Christ does that for us, which he did, we can have hope in even the darkest and direst situations in our lives. Please remember that this Lent, brothers and sisters, as we begin it, and realize that whatever crosses we're going through now, that there is that empty tomb in the victory with Christ. Good night, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio.
This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.